Welcome to the new episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Show is hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, and we want to welcome you to our fourth season, Haunted New Orleans. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we suggest you start listening to the Haunted New Orleans season with episode 53, which is where this season begins and where we set the stage for the many dark tales ahead. And here's another warning, too. This is the second part of a two-part episode about the La Lurie Mansion, the most haunted house in the city's history. If this is your first time listening, you'll hear the beginning of this story in episode 54. So burn some sage, make sure the lights are on, and prepare yourself for the next episode of Haunted New Orleans and the Dark Secrets of Delphine LaLaurie. On April 10, 1843, a fire broke out in the home of Dr. Louis Lalaurie and his wife Delphine. The house located on Royal Street was one of the showplaces of Creole New Orleans. The mansion had played host to some of the most elaborate soirees and parties in the city, but in recent months, rumors about the treatment of some of the Lalaurie slaves had caused some party invitations to be declined. Members of Creole society were just about to find out that many of those rumors were true. When the fire started, it began in the kitchen. Accounts say that it then spread to the upper floors. As smoke billowed out of the windows overlooking the street, it got the attention of passerby and neighbors who hurried to the house to lend assistance. Legend says that the fire was purposely started by the cook who was kept chained in the kitchen. She allegedly stated that she would rather burn to death than endure any more of the abuse she suffered at the hands of Madame LaLaurie. An alarm was sounded to the volunteer fire department, members of which were soon on the scene with water and to help remove people and household items from the mansion. Locals crowded into the house, some to help, others perhaps out of sheer curiosity. Many rushed about the scene, shouting and adding to the growing chaos. Delphine remained calm in the midst of it all, directing volunteers and steering firefighters toward the worst of the flames. She was intent on saving the house, and everyone who recalled her that day stated that she never panicked or raised her voice. Monsieur Montreal, the neighbor who first aroused suspicion about Delphine and the treatment of her servants, assisted during the fire. He demanded to know if any of the household slaves were in danger from the blaze and was allegedly told not to interfere in family business. Montreal then appealed to his friend Judge Canoge and they began searching the house. They were accompanied by a man named Fernandez and many of the firefighters. Several of the servants were found as the men climbed the stairs to the upper floors and were sent out of the house. According to a statement that was later given by Judge Kenosh, a man named Felix Lefevre had approached him in the house and told him that he had looked through a broken pane of glass and saw several slaves in a locked room. Several men went with Lefevre and broke into the room. They found two slaves inside, both women. One of them had a heavy metal collar around her neck and chains attached to her feet. She directed the men to another nearby room where they found a third female slave stretched out on a bed. She was an old woman with a deep wound on her head. 
She was too weak to get out of bed on her own, and when the men helped her up, she was unable to walk. So the men hoisted the mattress with her lying on it and carried her out of the house. Meanwhile, Montreal and Judge Kenosh had finally reached the upper floor through the smoke to discover a wooden door that led to the attic. It was locked. According to the New Orleans Courier of April 11, 1834, Judge Kenosh sought out Dr. LaLaurie, who was also present in the house. He's said to have asked him politely to open the attic door so that they could check for the presence of slaves, but the judge received a rude reply. Quote, there are those who could be better employed if they would attend to their own affairs instead of officiously intermeddling with the concerns of others. Well, it's hard to know what to make of this statement by Dr. LaLaurie and of his refusal to open the attic door. It's possible that he felt the attic was in no danger from the fire and didn't want the men poking around up there, since he undoubtedly knew what they would find. His statement was surely meant in reference to his neighbor, Montreal, who had already caused problems for the family over the treatment of their slaves. He'd earlier tried to protect the reputation of his wife, or likely that of the entire family, by freeing a mistreated slave so that his story would not become public. The LaLaurie couple had recently suffered embarrassment at having their slaves impounded, and he knew that discovery of what was hidden in the attic would leave the family in ruin. He turned out to be right about that. Dr. LaLaurie probably believed that his refusal to open the door would be enough to turn the men away, but he hadn't counted on the persistence of Montreal or Judge Kenoge. The judge ordered the firefighters to break open the door and they forced themselves into the attic. What greeted them behind the door shocked and dismayed the men. According to the New Orleans Bee newspaper for April 11th, 1834, quote, seven slaves, more or less horribly mutilated, were seen suspended by the neck with their limbs apparently stretched and torn from one extremity to the other. These slaves had been confined by the woman LaLaurie for several months in the situation from which they had thus providentially been rescued and had been merely kept in existence to prolong their suffering and to make them taste all that the most refined cruelty could inflict. The New Orleans Courier newspaper added, quote, a most appalling sight was presented in the shape of several wretched Negroes emerging from the fire, their bodies covered with scars and loaded with chains. Amongst them was a female slave, upward of 60 years of age, who could not move. We saw one of the miserable beings. The sight was so horrible that we could scarce not look at it. The most savage heart could not have witnessed the spectacle unmoved. He had a large hole in his head. His body was covered from head to toe with scars and filled with worms. The sight inspired us with such horror horror that even in the moment of writing this article, we shudder from its effects. Those who have seen the others represent them to be in similar condition. In some accounts of the discovery behind the attic door, these are the more modern ones, not the accounts written in 1834, detailed descriptions of all sorts of perverse tortures and experiments have been added. Tales have been told of makeshift operating tables, slaves locked in cages, bodies cut open, and holes that have been cut into human skulls in order for the victim's brains to be stirred. In most cases, the New Orleans Bee is cited as the source for this horror, but a check of the actual newspaper accounts proves this to be untrue. 
All the stories and eyewitness accounts of the time confirm the discovery of badly treated slaves in the house, as well as the horrific condition of the slaves kept in the attic. The story of the hole cut in the man's head so that his, quote, brains could be stirred, undoubtedly came from the courier's mention of the man with a hole in his head, his wounds, and the worms or maggots. This was referring to a deep wound, not an actual hole. Even so, he had been left in the attic with his wounds untreated for so long that maggots had been found in the cuts. Later sources from the late 19th and early 20th centuries, including some written by New Orleans natives who knew the case, also failed to mention anything other than the emaciated slaves who had wounds that were consistent with a long period of incarceration and abuse. This doesn't make things any better, of course. The slaves suffered horribly at the hands of a cruel and malicious master. Lurid tales of medical experiments take away from the fact that this was a horrible, vile situation. The first mention that I located of the terrible experiments, which have since become a staple in the retelling of the LaLaurie story, is in 1946. In the book Ghost Stories of Old New Orleans, author Jean Dalavine claims that the first men who entered the attic found, quote, Powerful male slaves, stark naked, chained to the wall, their eyes gouged out, their fingernails pulled out by the roots. Others had their joint skin and festering, great holes in their buttocks where their flesh had been sliced away, their ears hanging by shreds, their lips sewed together, their tongues drawn out and sewed to their chins, severed hands stitched to their bellies, legs pulled joint to joint. Female slaves there were, their mouths and ears crammed with ashes and chicken offal and bound tightly. Others had been smeared with honey and were a mass of black ants. Intestines were pulled out and knotted around naked waists. There were holes in skulls where a rough stick had been inserted to stir their brains. Some of the creatures were dead, some were unconscious, and a few were still breathing, suffering agonies beyond power to describe. End quote. It's certainly a terrifying scene, but there's not a shred of truth to it. The story created for the book was picked up, told, and retold by various authors over the years. It's been repeated time and time again, often by people who should have known better. What Delphine LaLaurie did to her slaves was horrible, but apparently by the 1940s, just mistreating and abusing your slaves was not horrible enough. To take the story and make it even more frightening, it had to go one step further. Looking back on this story today, we can see what Delphine did in the house on Royal Street was the work of a sadist and a sociopath, and more than ample reason for the house to gain a reputation for being haunted. As the mutilated slaves were carried and led out of the house, a crowd gathered outside. Only one or two friends remained beside Madame LaLaurie. By this time, Dr. LaLaurie was gone. There's no further mention of him in accounts of what happened next at the house. But we do know that he and his wife were separated after the fire, and this time it was for good. Delphine managed to get someone to lock the doors of the house and to close the wooden gates that led from the street into the courtyard. This effectively sealed the LaLaurie household off from the crowd outside, which was still milling about, waiting to see if any arrests were going to be made over the cruel treatment of the slaves. Nothing happened over the course of several hours that followed. The fire was out by this time, and it turned out little damage had been done to the house. Word spread of the atrocity discovered in the LaLaurie home, though, and people spoke again of the little girl that had allegedly been killed, the slaves that had been taken away from the LaLaurie family, and the rumors of slaves that went missing 
and were never seen again. According to reports in the New Orleans Gazette, at least 2,000 people came to the courthouse to see the slaves that had been taken from the mansion. The slaves received food and medical care and were prodded with questions about their captivity and abuse. A long wooden table was filled with instruments of torture that had been brought from the attic. They included whips, shackles, and knives, some of which were crusted with dried blood. One of the statements given came from a female slave who testified that Madame LaLaurie would sometimes beat and torture her captives while music and parties were going on downstairs. She would come into the locked room still clad in her ball gown and lash the slaves as they cowered on the floor. After a few lashes, she would appear to be satisfied and would leave. One of the women also testified that Delphine once beat her own daughter for bringing food to the starving slaves. Passionate words swept through New Orleans as curious crowds came to gape at the starving and brutalized slaves. As the wounded men and women choked down the food that was given to them, Judge Canoge, Montreal, Fernandez, and Felix Lefevre all made formal statements to the authorities about their discovery of the locked chamber in the attic. In the meantime, the mob was still waiting outside the gates to the house on Royal Street. They expected to see arrests made and for the authorities to demand entry to the house. Hours passed and the police did not arrive. The mob continued to grow. More and more people came as each hour passed and they grew more restless and belligerent. Soon threats were being shouted at the shuttered windows and calls for vengeance were heard from the street. Suddenly, late in the afternoon, the entry to the high-walled courtyard burst open and a carriage roared out of the gates. It plowed directly into the mob and men scattered before the angry hooves of the horses. The coach pushed through the crowd and disappeared from sight, racing down Hospital Street toward Bayou Road. It all happened so quickly that everyone was taken by surprise. Someone cried out that the carriage had only been a decoy, that Madame Lalaurie was actually escaping through a rear door. While some went to look, others swore she'd been in the carriage alone. Dr. LaLaurie was nowhere to be found. Delphine's children, it was rumored afterward, had been forced to escape the house by climbing over a balcony and into a house next door. But it was Delphine that the angry mob was seeking, and she'd easily escaped their clutches. The carriage drove furiously along the Bayou Road, and it said that a sailing vessel waiting for her there and left at once for Mandeville. Another story claimed that she remained in hiding in New Orleans for several days and only left the city when she realized that public opinion was hopelessly against her. No one knows which of these stories is true, but we do know that she was in Mandeville nearly 10 days later because she signed a power of attorney that would allow an agent in New Orleans to handle her business affairs on her behalf. The seething mob that remained behind on Royal Street continued to grow. Delphine's flight had enraged the crowd and they decided to take their anger out on the mansion she left behind. The New Orleans Courier reported that, quote, doors and windows were broken open, the crowd rushed in, and the work of destruction began. Feather beds were ripped open and thrown out into the street while curtains were pulled down from the windows and pictures were torn from the walls. Men carried furniture, pianos, tables, sofas, and chairs and hurled them out the windows to see them splinter on the street below. After destroying every belonging left in the house, the mob, still unsatisfied, began to tear the house itself apart. The mahogany railings were ripped away from the staircase, glass was broken, and doors were torn from their hinges and worse. A reporter for the New Orleans Bee wrote a rather florid description of what the mob did to the house, but it boiled down to them looting the place, smashing anything that was left, and leaving behind some pretty descriptive graffiti on the walls. 
It was later suggested that the house itself be completely torn down, but cooler heads prevailed, and instead the house was closed and sealed. It remained that way for several years, silent, uninhabited, and abandoned. Or was it? Most believe that Madame LaLaurie disappeared without a trace after the fire, but this was not the case. It turns out that at least some of her movements were pretty easy to trace. After her flight from New Orleans, Delphine set up residence in Paris. The ghastly discovery in the attic had been enough to drive the family, despite their wealth and social standing, out of the country. Her husband did not travel to Paris with her. His reputation had been destroyed, and Delphine ensured that it would be further tarnished early in her exile. Her son, Paul, wrote a letter to his brother-in-law, Auguste de la Sceau, in which he spoke of the bad treatment that his mother received at her husband's hands. Dr. Lalaurie had also been present when others had treated Delphine badly, the letter said, and had done nothing to defend her. I'm sure that this was the way that Delphine saw things and the way that she passed it on to her impressionable son. She was the tortured and abused one. Her husband had done nothing to defend her when she was attacked for beating her slaves, which she felt she had every right to do since they were her property. Lewis had then abandoned her, unable to deal with her cruelty and sadistic nature, which Delphine saw as the ultimate betrayal. As far as is known, Dr. LaLaurie never saw his wife again. In fact, he nearly vanished from history, only emerging in 1842 when he wrote a letter from Cuba to Auguste de la Sceau. The two men had been friends years before, and Lewis called on that friendship to ask that some of his possessions be sent to him in Havana, Cuba. Dr. LaLaurie died in Cuba, but no record of his, the date of his death has ever been found. He remained exiled on the island for the remainder of his life, his professional reputation in tatters and his name all but destroyed. While never tortured, beaten, or killed by her hand, Lewis was nevertheless a victim of the sadistic cruelty of Delphine LaLaurie. Well, Delphine settled comfortably into her Paris life. When she arrived, she was accompanied by her six-year-old son, Jean-Louis, her son, Paulin, and daughters, Pauline and Laurie. Despite some stories, she was never in hiding while living in Paris. She could not be prosecuted for any of the crimes she'd committed in New Orleans, so her whereabouts were no secret. She thrived in Paris, conducting her business in Louisiana from France. She paid her taxes and financed the repair of another residence in New Orleans that was later rented out. In the early 1840s, it seems that Delphine began worrying about money and the state of her finances and, believe it or not, decided to return to New Orleans. Her children were appalled that she would even consider such an action, but they were unable to talk her out of it. Now, there are a number of different stories that were told about what happened to Madame LaLaurie after she'd left New Orleans, and nearly as many stories that were told about her death. One claimed that she was killed by a wild boar while hunting in France. Another story insisted that she died among family and friends in Paris. She didn't. She actually came back to New Orleans because her name appears in legal papers filed after the death of her brother, L.B. McCarty, in 1850. Her name next appeared after her death. A newspaper advertisement appeared in the New Orleans Times in 1858 about the sale of parcels to settle her estate. However, no burial notice appeared in the newspaper at the time or any other time. Based on how long it normally took to settle an estate in those days, Delphine probably died between 1855 and 1858, but no one really knows for sure. And where was she buried? Well, no one knows that either. She could have been interred in any of the McCarty family crypts or even in some anonymous tomb. Nothing exists to say either way. 
In the end, we can only wonder what became of one of New Orleans' most infamous women. Her final days remain a mystery, much like the one that still surrounds her once grand home on Royal Street. The haunted history of the LaLaurie Mansion is perhaps one of the best-known stories of ghosts in the city. For generations, it's been considered the most haunted house in the French Quarter, and in many early writings of the city, it was referred to simply as the haunted house. The name of the mansion was seldom mentioned, and yet everyone seemed well aware as to what house the writer was referring to. Horrible things happened in this house, horrible enough to earn the house a reputation that still lingers almost two centuries later. The stories of a haunting at 1140 Royal Street began almost as soon as the LaLaurie carriage fled the house. According to legend, firemen, police officers, and scavengers heard scratching and moaning sounds coming from the house for several days after the fire, but they were unable to find anyone living or dead. No bodies were found in the ruined portions of the house. Stories later circulated about Madame LaLaurie's graveyard being found on the property and of bodies being found beneath the floors of the house in the 1970s, but no record of remains being discovered exists today. One must wonder whatever became of the servants who vanished and were never seen again, or what became of the body of the little girl that a neighbor saw being buried in the courtyard. Were these disappearances merely part of the LaLaurie legend, or was there truth to the stories? Ghastly tales circulated about the house. It remained vacant for a few years after its sacking by the mob, falling to a state of ruin and decay. Many people claimed to hear screams of agony coming from the empty house at night and saw the apparitions of slaves walking about on the balconies and in the yards. Some stories even claimed that vagrants who had gone into the house seeking shelter were never heard from again. The house was still owned by the LaLaurie family and managed by Delphine's son-in-law until 1837 when it was sold through the city. It was then renovated in its current three-story configuration. The man who purchased and remodeled the mansion only kept it for three months. He told his family and friends that he was plagued by strange noises, cries, and groans in the night, and he soon abandoned the place. He tried leasing the house to a barber shop and to a store that rented the basement for a short time, but none of the occupants stayed around for long. He tried to rent rooms out, but the tenants only remained for a few days at most. Finally, he gave up, and the house was abandoned. Following the Civil War, reconstruction turned the empty Lotherie Mansion into an integrated high school for girls of the lower district. But in 1874, the White League forced the black children to leave the school. Racist White League members actually lined the girls up and questioned them about their family backgrounds, trying to find out which ones were colored and which were not. In a city as racially diverse as New Orleans, many had both white and black ancestors. To racists, even having a black ancestor several generations removed was enough to brand someone as colored. The girls were forcibly removed from the school. Soon after the school was closed, the house was listed as a leaf tobacco business owned by Joseph Barnes. In addition, the 1938 New Orleans City Guide stated that the building was used as a gambling house in the 1870s. According to the guide, quote, Stories were told and retold of the strange lights and shadow objects that were seen flitting about in different apartments, their forms draped with sheets, skeleton heads protruding. 
hoarse voices like unto those supposed to come only from the charnel house floated out on the fog-laden air on dismal and rainy nights with the ominous sound of clanking chains coming from the servants' quarters where foul crimes are said to have been committed. (laughs) Wow. Needless to say, it's rather hard to take this entry in the guide too seriously, but it does lend credence to the fact that stories were still circulating about Delphine and her victims many, many years after the events actually occurred. In 1876, a newspaper published an article about the house being up for auction. It was described in the article as, quote, admirably adapted for a large boarding school, asylum, first-class boarding house, or spacious summer residence. The building is leased for the summer, renting at a rate of $150 per month. In 1878, the New Orleans schools were officially segregated and the house, once a school where all the colored children were forced to leave, became a school for black children only. Ironic. This lasted for only one year, though. In 1882, the mansion once again became a center for New Orleans society when an English teacher turned it into a, quote, conservatory of music and a fashionable dancing school. Well, all went well for some time. The teacher was well-known and attracted students from the finest of the local families. But things came to a terrible conclusion. A local newspaper apparently printed an accusation against the teacher claiming some improprieties with female students just before a grand social event was to take place at the school. Students and guests shunned the place and the school closed down the following day. A few years later, more strange events plagued the house and it became the center of rumors regarding the death of Joseph Edward Vignet the eccentric member of a wealthy New Orleans family. Vignet lived secretly in the house from around 1889 until his death in 1892. He was found dead on a tattered cot in the mansion, apparently living in filth, while hidden away in the surrounding rooms was a collection of antiques and treasures. A bag containing several hundred dollars was discovered near his body, and another search found several thousand dollars hidden in his mattress. For some time after, rumors of a lost treasure circulated about the mansion, but few dared to go in search of it. In June 1893, an article ran in the Times Democrat that stated, quote, F. Greco purchased the haunted house at Hospital and Royal. Yesterday, he posted large flowing placards upon the walls of the building announcing in both Italian and English the haunted house. There is an end to everything. So there is with ghosts. Come and be convinced. Admission, 10 cents. This was apparently New Orleans' very first ghost tour, but how long this attraction ran is unknown, but by late in the decade, the house was empty once more. Starting in the 1890s, the house changed hands five times in the next two decades. Author Henry C. Castellanos noted in 1895, quote, a year or two ago, it was the receptacle of the scum of Italian immigrants, and the fumes of the malodorous filth which emanated from its interior proclaimed what it really was. Well, Castellanos was as biased toward Italian Americans as many in New Orleans were at the time. This was a period of great immigration to America, and when many Italian immigrants flocked to New Orleans. By 1890, there were more than 15,000 of them living in the city, mostly in the crumbling French Quarter, which by then had fallen out of favor with most Creole families. Outside of New York, New Orleans saw more Italian immigrants than anywhere in America, and the majority of them came from Sicily. Landlords quickly bought up old and abandoned buildings to convert into cheap housing for this new wave of renters. The LaLaurie Mansion, with its more than 40 rooms, became such a house. For many of the tenants, though, even cheap rent was not enough to keep them there. 
It was during this time that the first accounts surfaced of bodies being found under the floors of the house. As workmen came in to repair the old wooden floors, human skeletons were found lying beneath. According to author Jean Delevingne, who we have already discovered is not exactly totally reliable, quote, it all simmered down to one conclusion, that they were the bodies of the Lollary slaves, buried thus in order that their manner of death should not become known. Now, was there any truth to this story, or was it just one more of the author's fanciful additions to the legend? Well, there's no documentation of such a discovery, such as newspaper articles or police reports, but can we be absolutely sure that a slumlord and his cheaply played workmen would have reported such a find? Isn't it entirely possible that the owner of the ramshackle old house could have simply ordered the men to just cover up what they found so that he could quickly rent the place out? Well, we'll never know. But what you do know is that during this time when the mansion was a tenement house, a number of strange events were reported. Among them was an encounter between an occupant and a naked black man in chains who attacked him. The black man abruptly vanished. Others claimed to have animals butchered in the house. Children were attacked by a phantom with a whip. Strange figures appeared wrapped in shrouds. And of course, the ever-present sounds of screams, groans, and cries that would reverberate through the house at night. The sounds, they said, came from the locked and abandoned room where the slaves had been discovered during the fire. One young mother claimed to be terrified one night when she looked over to where her baby was sleeping and saw a dark-haired woman in elegant evening clothes bending over her sleeping infant. The ghostly woman was said to have been Delphine Lalaurie herself. When the mother let out a blood-curdling cry, the apparition vanished. It was never easy to keep tenants in the house, and finally, after word spread of the strange goings-on there, the mansion was deserted and remained vacant until 1923, when William Warrington established the Warrington House, a refuge for wayward boys. For the next nine years, the house opened its doors to a succession of madcap young men, as Warrington called them, who were released from jails and prisons and put into Warrington's care. In 1932, the mansion was sold to the Grand Consistatory of Louisiana, an organization like the Freemasons who kept the house for the next decade. They sold it in 1942. In 1943, in the midst of World War II, the mansion saw a new group of tenants. According to an Associated Press story from June 1943, quote, the sheet-waving, bone-rattling crew that has occupied New Orleans' most widely known haunted house for the last 111 years has been dispossessed to make way for war workers. Despite the kindness which this city and the entire South has always shown to its ghosts and haunts, no investigation by the rental division of the OPA is anticipated. With the city's normal half-million population augmented by 50,000 war workers and an additional 12,000 workers anticipated to man now building aircraft plants, the ghosts will have to shift for themselves. As it was during the great immigration wave of the 1890s, New Orleans saw itself bombarded with new and temporary arrivals during the war years, and all of them were looking for places to live. With so many homes and empty buildings in the French Quarter, government services took over the old Lollary Mansion and converted it into apartments for workers. Their tenancy lasted until the end of the war when the house was put back on the market. 
Now, there's no record of any supernatural activity occurring in the house at that time, but the story stayed fresh in the minds of the locals, which leads many to believe that tales were still being told. You see, in 1945, the first floor of the house was turned into a tavern, which the proprietor called the Haunted Saloon. Taking advantage of the house's eerie history, he kept a record of the strange things that were experienced there by staff and patrons. After the bar closed, the space was opened again as a furniture store. It did not fare well in the former Lollery house. The owner first suspected vandals when all of his merchandise was found ruined on several occasions, covered in some sort of dark, stinking liquid. He finally waited one night with a shotgun, hoping the vandals would return. When dawn came, the furniture was all ruined again, even though he knew that no one had entered the building. Exasperated and frightened, he closed the place down. The house was apparently empty for most of the early 1960s. An article that appeared in 1964 reported that a preservation group was trying to stop the deterioration and partial demolition of the former Lollery House. Evidently, people had been looting the abandoned place and stealing anything out of it that could be taken. Well, as it turned out, the house was saved, although in 1969 it became an apartment building again, this time with ghostly results. Zella Funk, an artist who lived in one of the apartments, stated that the poltergeists in her place were, quote, playful. They're not around every day, but they do surprise visitors. She stated that one of the ghosts that she had seen was that of a handsome man in old-fashioned clothing, which may have been Dr. LaLaurie. Another tenant, a Mrs. Richards, reported numerous incidents in her apartment, such as opened water faucets, locked doors becoming unlocked, and showers that turned on by themselves. In 2000, the mansion was purchased by a New Orleans doctor who decided to restore the house to its original state. He never reported any paranormal experiences during his time in the house. And then, in 2007, actor Nicolas Cage bought the LaLaurie mansion through his Hancock Park real estate company. Rumor had it that Cage was living in the front section of the house and renting out the back gallery where the slaves' quarters were once located. Cage was spending a lot of time in New Orleans in those days and even had a tomb built for himself in St. Louis Cemetery No. 1. If he was living in the LaLaurie Mansion, though, his tenancy was pretty short-lived. In 2008, the house was back on the market and listed at $3.5 million. A year later, the bank foreclosed on the home, and it was purchased by the Regents Financial Corporation in November 2009. Today, the house is again privately owned, and whether or not it's still haunted is unknown. Despite its appearance in television show like American Horror Story and a possible future show on Netflix, it seems to have been pretty quiet since the late 70s. It certainly earned its place in supernatural history with the accounts of all the ghostly events that have taken place there, but today... It seems a lot like a battery that's lost most of its charge. I had the chance to go inside the mansion once several years ago, and I'd be lying if I said I hadn't hoped to see or feel something in the place. I went away with no supernatural encounter, but I did not go away disappointed. It was a house alive with evil history. I heard no phantom whispers or spectral wails, but I did leave with a sense of the evil legacy that Delphine LaLaurie left behind in that place. She created a legend that has lived on for nearly two centuries. Can a spirit like her, so infused with anger and evil, ever really find peace? And can her victims? Those ghosts may no longer walk in the house on Royal Street, but history has left a dark and indelible impression there. The ghosts may be gone, but how much more haunted can one house be?
Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words? recorded the whole thing, got to the end, and then I was just going to hit pause mm-hmm. and continue. Um, that program doesn't actually pause. Oh. Um, so I think it will. I just didn't know how to pause it. And I deleted the entire thing. So Damn. that was great. So I got yeah. to do the whole thing over again. So Thanks for tuning into the American Hauntings podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. We are now deep into season four of the podcast Haunted New Orleans. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. And I was going to add to that, and future Santa Claus. Oh, yeah. Yeah, someone told me that they thought that I looked like a hipster Santa Claus. You'd make a good Santa Claus. Yeah, I've decided I've decided that because of the line of work I'm in, I have no retirement plan. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't really want to retire. Right. I like what I do. But as I plan to work till I die. But instead of maybe doing tours when I don't you know, feel like doing them anymore, I thought that I would maybe do some Santa Claus work. I like that. I think it would be fun. I was actually driving to the hotel. For the kids. Well, yeah, yeah. The kids, the kids are the worst. We'll, we'll Maybe get I'll it. just do like adult party Santa Claus. That would so be fun. Bachelorette party Santa Clauses. Or oh, something I like could. That. So I I could see that. I was. It'd be limited time of year though. For that, so <laughs> when I was driving here, I saw up by uh, like Walgreens and CVS, like Main Street and College mm-hmm. or Washington mm-hmm. and College. I saw a Santa Claus get out of like a Chevy Cavalier. Oh, and that's 
sort of don't, sad. Don't know what he was doing. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a sleigh. Uh, anyway, what's been going on, man? We haven't oh, caught up in a yeah, little while. No, no, we're uh, we are cruising into the holidays. And so we are doing uh, some crash recording today of, well, the shows for the entire rest of the year. Yeah. This is it. I mean, we've got mo- a part of it done. The monologues are all done for the whole rest of 2019. And this year can't be over soon enough for me. So <laughs> I'm ready to let this one go and move on to 2020. It's got to be fun that we're going to be starting the Roaring Twenties again. So yeah. let's hope they're as good as the first time around. I'm so. excited. Well, what kind of stuff we have coming up for 2020? Well, you know, we've got lots of stuff. I mean, we're already planning on the conference and all that stuff. I'll check. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about all that. Um, just because this is going to air before the holidays, there's just a few things that I want to mention, and I will do this quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, currently, we are offering 10% off all gift certificates for the Alton and Chicago tour. So if you go and get a gift certificate for Alton, for the Alton Hauntings or the Weird Chicago tours, and you use the promo code HOLIDAY, you'll get 10% off, but still get the full amount of the bachelor or the, the bachelor party. Bachelorette well, party. Well, I really went off on a, on a tangent there, but off your gift certificate. So what are you, what that, are you thinking about whenever we're having these? Well, I wasn't until <laughs> the Santa thing came up. So um, also because it's not too late to give gifts of ghost hunts and that kind of thing from American hauntings for holiday gifts. And while that would seem weird to people who don't listen to that show, to people who listen to that show, it sounds totally normal Yeah, um, that we do have not only ghost hunts, but we've got a lot of our events coming up. Um, We have ghost hunts all over Illinois in the Midwest coming into the winter and the spring. And we have our evening with events coming up. Limp Family, St. Louis Exorcism, Bell Witch, Spirit World, Lizzie Borden, a bunch of stuff. Um, Anytime that you reserve any of these tickets for a ghost hunt or event where we've been sending out certificates with them that you can print out. And so then you've got something tangible to give someone as a gift rather than just go, hey, look, here's a confirmation email that I got. This is actually something you can print out. Um, so it's not too late to do that. We hope you'll take advantage of it uh, because uh, a lot of people have. This has been great this year. People are excited that, you know, to realize that this stuff doesn't stop with Halloween. Right. And that all Those of us who are into this stuff are into it all year round, which means a lot of people on your holiday lists are also excited about it. So you can check all that stuff out at AmericanHauntings.net. And also, I will remind you, and I'll probably remind you in the next two episodes, too, that tickets go on sale for the Haunted America Conference starting on January 6th. Mark that date on your calendar because you do want to get those tickets. Anybody who's been before knows that you got to get your tickets for the workshops and the after hour events early. Um, We got a bunch of new stuff in 2020. And uh, if you don't get that stuff, you will end up on a waiting list that we can't do much of anything about, unfortunately, because they fill up, you know? So, um, anyway, you can check all that out and see everything about the conference at ghostconference.net. And I'm done. You're done. I told you I would do it quickly. All right. Well, I appreciate it. One thing I wanted to say, uh, we crossed half a million downloads. Awesome. That's that's, cool. Yeah. I really appreciate it. It blows my mind. It does. Um, Me too. I don't know who would want to listen to this, but I'm glad they do. I know it's just, it's the worst. Um, (laughs) and then we did a secret Santa thing at work and, uh, a buddy of mine got me, uh, the Tibetan book of the dead. Oh yeah. Cause he's really into Buddhism and he knows that I'm into, you know, the weird stuff, (laughs) the dead. And, uh, yeah. And it's about, uh, it says the experiences that the consciousness has after death, uh, the interval between death and the next rebirth. So I'm interested to check that out. Cool. And uh, yeah, I don't really know what I'm getting myself into, but (laughs) I'm excited. I just uh, want to say thanks. Shout out to Kyle for that. 
Uh, we got a lot of great listener reviews yeah. lately. Yeah. Um, I'm going to dive into some of these. So this one, and these are in yeah, no... Do a couple, yeah. Yeah, these are in no particular order. I, if, I try to grab them as I can, but it's, sure. it's a tedious process. Uh, this is titled Love It. It says, just found out about this podcast a couple days ago. Fun and enjoyable to listen to. I really hope they expand to other parts of Illinois. And then this person has an update to their review. It says, who cares if they're eating while recording? It's their prerogative. <laughs> don't like it. Don't listen. Although I, I have not eaten anything since then. We I have know, not. We have not eaten anything. But hey, we're listening to people's we feedback. Are, we, we are. We appreciate it. But I, I like when people come to our come to our defense for that. So that was from... Uh, Lursa, nineteen. Oh no! Finish it because it's oh, funny. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Um, oh right. Okay. I, I yeah. can imagine sitting around having a few beers and just shooting the breeze with them. Love the podcast. Yeah. Keep which doing is what, what this was supposed to be. A hundred percent. That's yeah. that's a very good point. So thank you. But for I that. guess when more people listen, we have to act like we know what we're doing. I know. I know. Rather than when we started, we've so. been we've been called unprofessional. I said, oh, hold well, on. <laughs> we, there you go. Never yeah. claimed to be a professional. Yeah. Uh, but thank you very much for that review. Uh, this next one's titled "I Obviously Want Another." As an Iowan, I know about Velisca and have been to the house. I didn't experience anything, but my wife had an ominous feeling. I enjoy the more long form, deeper dives into the topics and the banter between the hosts and well, Cody dot, dot, dot. Looking forward to season four. Uh, that's from ye effing ha. Uh, so thank you. I'm, I'm glad I, I passed the test on that one. Uh, this next one's titled awesome podcast. So I heard about the podcast on astonishing legends. Thank you again. And it's quickly become one of my favorites. I've already binged every episode and really enjoy listening to Cody and Troy's banter as well as their antics to annoy each other. Yes, I do listen all the way to the end. <laughs> it doesn't take much. But right? it, it does make me laugh when Troy tries to interrupt. I appreciate this summary and conversation after the monologue because it helps me clarify all the dates and people named looking forward to cool. reading Troy's books because when, uh, when finances allow, keep up the great job guys. Can't wait for the next episode. That's from, Chris Vegastar. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, this one, next one's titled Love Troy's Books. And then dot, 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 this may, dot, 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 it gets cut off. I think it's like this, this may be better. I don't know, something like that. But uh, again, I can't see the full title. On right. here, but it <laughs> right. says, I've always enjoyed Troy's books. The history added to the supernatural has always fascinated me. But I have to say, after hearing the tales being told and discussed, it's so cool. Troy, you have a fabulous, Troy have a fabulous way of telling a story. Your delivery is excellent and draws me in. Cody, having you draw more out of Troy in a way any of us would is so fun. You're generally interested and willing to discuss anything. It keeps the podcast down to earth and on the same level for the rest of us abnormal people. <laughs> it always It's always exciting to see a new episode pop into my notifications. In fact, one or more of the upcoming events is on my Christmas list. My husband better be prepared. That's from uh, Shan Kaz. Um, it seems like people are understanding what we're yeah, trying to do I now. Think, yeah, I think so. And I love Is this that. our fourth season? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but people, people well, get it. that's all right. That's good. Yeah, so. people get it. So thank you so much for the review. Uh, okay, so this last one's titled Great Podcast. It says, this podcast contains some of the best stories I have ever listened to. I really appreciate the amount of research that Troy, Troy puts into things that go bump in the night. Cody is a great part of the show, not just a slightly annoying sidekick. Thank you. I really <laughs> love the history lessons of Weird History. Keep up the good work. That's from Diva Girl Cool. Um, so yeah, like I said, people are people are getting it. Cool. They're figuring good it deal. out. Um, we really fun. really appreciate that. Again, yeah, we do appreciate everybody doing it. So, yeah, not yeah. everybody has an iPhone, but oh, so many of our listens come through iTunes yeah, and stuff. And so it really I've helps. I've started to see people are getting things from other places. It's not just iTunes or I yeah. whatever the app on your iPhone anymore. Yes. It's Spotify. Somebody said Pandora. Do we put oh, stuff yeah, on I Pandora? Put, I put it on Pandora. Okay. Well then there you go. Cause yep. I was like, okay, great. Cause As a new I thing. have no idea where you were here. You were hearing it on there. So cool. All right. Good deal. Yeah. Wherever you listen, I'm just happy that yeah, you listen. Me too. All right. Are we ready to dive sure. in? Sure. No, I'm ready when you're ready. All right. So April 10th, 1843, a fire breaks out at the LaLaurie mansion. 
Uh, Delphine remains calm, never panicked, never raises her voice. The neighbors, uh, Montreal and Judge Kenoge. Kenoge. Okay, I know you tried to spell it out for me, but I was like, yeah. Can OJ? What? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Judge Kenoge. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I should uh, just, you know, a little behind the scenes when I write these, I. I do this more for myself than Cody, but I will go ahead and put a, you know, an enunciated, you know, spelled out yeah. pronunciation for each of these names. Because, again, if you somehow missed the earlier episodes, <laughs> French is not my cup of tea. Not so so much. I don't I, I had to try to figure out how to say all this stuff and then I spell it out phonetically. And this one actually looks like a can of OJ. Yes. So, uh, you know, it's a little confusing, but it sure helps me as I'm trying to read these uh, in, in the monologue. It usually helps me. This one just kind of threw me for a little <laughs> loop. <but laughs> I can understand. So uh, Montreal, ju- the judge, and then they, uh, guy Fernandez, they search the house with firefighters because they're looking for other slaves and people that might be Ooh, in there. Right, right. And they get to an attic and find a locked door. And essentially, Dr. Lalaurie is like, no, get out of here. Yeah. Like, don't worry about what's behind yeah. that door. Yeah, the fire's not going to spread that far. Don't yes. worry about it. And so just this act, like, this makes me think he had I to know, know Well, right? I think he knew. I mean, I, I've, I've always thought he knew. I think he knew after the, the separation. Right. You know, he knew that she was a wacko. And I don't, maybe he didn't know the extent of it. I mean, I think it was a case of where he just didn't want to know. Sure. Because would you want to know that? You know, it always reminds me of the people who find out that their, you know, husband is a serial killer. You like the BTK killer's wife or something or one of Ted Bundy's girlfriends, you know, I mean, you know, and then I'm not talking about the ones that didn't want to marry them while they're in prison. I'm talking about the normal ones that they were involved in, you know, when you find something out. So chances are he knew something was going on and didn't want to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we know that her daughters knew because some of the slaves that were taken out of the attic testified that, um, that I'm going to say probably Porquita. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know about the, if the, it was the younger ones, but you know, tried to feed the slaves because she was starving them. And then she beat her right. you know, because she did. So the girls obviously knew something was up, mm-hmm. but then all of them, but Porquita followed her to, Paris, Paris right. at the end. So I'm going to say that she was the one who rebelled mm-hmm. uh, would be my guess because there's, she just kind of falls out of the story completely. And what I do know is that she did spend the rest of her life living in New Orleans with her husband, but whether or not she had any contact with her mother, there's no record of it. Mm. So I don't know. Um, and I didn't mention that in the monologue, but I think that it's worthy of note that she may have been the one who caused trouble for her mother, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, so. well, good on her. Yeah, exactly. The so judge orders the firefighters open the door. They find a very gruesome scene. Uh, but this is kind of where some of the rumors start. Well, that's uh, where the legend, the legend begins starts. to grow. Right. Yeah. Um, and so to be clear, this is all still really, really terrible. Oh, it's but, awful. But we just want to be accurate yeah. with what, what we're seeing. Um, and the rumors apparently start to come. You found a, a book called Ghost Stories of Old New Orleans. Yeah. And I think that's where it started. That was the first time that I found anything about, you know, operating tables and experiments and all that stuff. I think that 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 got sort of blown out of proportion. And again, I'm going to say the same thing I said in the monologue. This is horrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is horrible. This is this is depravity. I mean, the, the way that this woman was treating these people. Um, so they were in terrible conditions. But, you know, by the 1940s, apparently that didn't seem bad enough. Mm. You know, um, I don't know that. I mean, that's just a an idea on my part. But for some reason, someone decided that, you know, just having them starved, hung from in chains 
wasn't bad enough. So we needed to add to it. And some of the things I didn't get into, and I've heard back in the in years past, I've been on some tours in New Orleans that are um, historically challenged, sure. let's say. Okay, and I like that. I like they that. will tell stories about how there was a woman that they locked in a, that she was locked in a cage and left there for so long that when she was released from her cage, she walked like a crab and yeah. I mean, or had her limbs broken and reset. And mm-hmm. I mean, there's some just, there are some really crazy stories that, that completely blows this out of proportion and don't get me wrong. It's terrible. I mean, it's all terrible. And again, I feel like I'm, you know, I feel like I'm a broken record here and talking about how bad this was, but on the other hand, not quite as bad as the legends would turn sure. it into. Yeah. So, well, no, we want to be, you know, yeah, be clear I'd like about to the history. be accurate. I mean, this woman was a sociopath. Um, there's no question about it. I mean, she was, there was something wrong with her, but you know, she wasn't. And that implies that, that it was Dr. LaLaurie up there experimenting on the slaves. Dude was a dentist. Okay. <laughs> so let's, let's try and be accurate here. Right. You know, so, you know, taking their intestines out and wrapping them around their waist, like belts. And I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is stuff out of a, you know, Eli Roth, mm-hmm. you know, early 2000s hostile movie right. or something. This is not real life. Real life is what we already described. <laughs> bad enough. And that's bad enough. So yeah. speaking of Dr. LaLaurie, uh, he pieces out. Yeah, he just leaves. He just takes off. Uh, The slaves are questioned. Torture instruments are displayed at the courthouse. Uh, Well, they were taken down to the square. The the courthouse there is at Jackson Square. To the the big courthouse. And they were actually, they were put, all of the manacles and whips and things were put out on tables in in Jackson Square. Mm. Um, And I don't, you know, people came to see this. I mean, it was a a huge deal. They were talking about over 2,000 people crowding around to watch these emaciated slaves eating and drinking and telling their stories. And Judge Canoge and Montreal and uh, Felix Lefevre, these people were all there telling what they had seen when they went in. And it was, it was a big deal. I mean, it was a spectacle. Sure. You know, so. Yeah. And one, one of the slaves says that Delphine would leave parties to go yeah. torture them and then come back. I, that's so in her ball creepy. gown. Yeah, so come creepy. up there just to whip them. I'm guessing blow off a little steam. Yeah. I, I, it's all I can and think. And then paint a smile back on her face. Uh-huh. Yeah. Go back down like nothing yeah. happened. Crazy. Uh, so there's a mob still waiting outside the mansion at this time. And uh, eventually a carriage bursts out into the mob. Uh, we don't know exactly how she escaped. If this was a decoy or if she was yeah, in there. Nobody knows what, for sure. But somehow she got out. And then you know that she was in Mandeville 10 days later because right. she signed power of attorney. Right. Um, and then the crowd's so pissed off that they just start destroying everything yeah, in the start house. tearing the house apart. Which is uh, crazy, but I guess I, I understand. Um, and then Well, they had to take their frustrations out on something. Yeah. You know, she had gotten away and they had worked themselves up into such a state, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I'm going to say, I'm, uh, you know, it's hard to know exactly who these people were. Uh, I'm going to guess probably working class people mm-hmm. would have been the ones who would have been more upset than anything. Right. You know, we're, you know, how many, what, 20 years, 30 years off the French revolution. Mm-hmm. And there had been a big uprising in New Orleans at that time, probably the same, you know, working class folks that, you know, got been out of shape about that are now outside the the home of this rich woman who had been in you know, abusing her slaves. She'd already been in trouble for it. And, you know, as we discussed in the last episode, that was taken somewhat seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, not the punishments were not exactly strict, but still, 
So, and I think that because she wasn't being punished, they decided they would make sure she got punished and she got away. And yeah. so they got mad and decided that they would loot the house. Right. Try to eat the, eat the so rich. Essentially, yeah. yeah. It's essentially, they just looted the place. Right. So she, we know she goes to Paris um, and feels like she's the abused one. Um, and, oh, well, yeah. And as far as, as far as we know, Dr. Lollery never saw his wife again. It eventually dies in Cuba. Uh, but she, you said she thrives in Paris, though. Well, yeah, because that's that was again, that's always been one of the legends. And, you know, and, uh, you know, a big part of the legend were, was all the experiments and the torture mm-hmm. things and all this stuff, which was blown out of proportion. And then because I don't know, a, a teller of the tale mm-hmm. at some point decided that it needed to end more in mystery than it did. Plus, it was and we talked about this in uh, probably every season. A lot harder to check records back then than yeah. it is now. And so, you know, it made a better story for, you know, Delphine to have just simply disappeared and nobody knows what happened to her. But, you know, she you know, was hunting one day and got eaten by a wild boar. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because you want her to be punished. You want her to get her just desserts. And she never did. She didn't. She went to Paris. She couldn't be prosecuted for anything she'd done because really... She hadn't, she'd broken the, the black codes, mm-hmm. but the punishment in New Orleans was, you know, for the white slave owners was pretty tame. Yeah. You know, they might, they had their slaves taken away once. That's probably all that would have happened again. She might've paid a fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but because the, the feelings of people had turned against her, yes, the legal community may be done, but the, the people who live there were very angry. And so she didn't want, you know, anything to happen with you know, um, people that live there and that kind of thing. So she decided to run, but what are they going to prosecute her for in Paris? Nothing. I mean, there's nothing they could have prosecuted her for at home. So she didn't live in secret. She didn't die in secret. She continued to conduct her business in Louisiana through her son-in-law and she paid her taxes and she paid for, you know, some repairs on that house. She repaid for repairs on another house that she owned in the Marigny district, which is where it's believed she moved back to, which is just uh, outside of their French quarter. And so it just, it was one of those things where she, you know, somehow the story became that she became very mysterious, but she really never did. I mean, she came back to New Orleans. Mm -hmm. I mean, even though her children asked her not to, because I think it was probably just as embarrassing for them as it was for her because everyone knew the name by that point. Um, She came back to New Orleans where she continued to live, um, you know, under the radar pretty much because she doesn't appear much in public records. We don't know exactly where she was living, but it's believed she was living that house in Marigny. Um, But then when her brother died, her name was in the legal papers that were filed because she inherited some of his money. And then after her death, there was an advertisement that some of her uh, land was being sold to settle her estate, and but no death date was ever listed. Mm-hmm. Now, there are stories, and I did not include this in the monologue. There is a story that a caretaker in St. Louis Cemetery Number 1 found a metal plaque in the early, early 1900s, around 1903, 1904, that had her name on it in the cemetery, but it's since been lost. Mm. Um, there is a photograph that exists of it. Oh, I've, right. I've seen the photograph, uh, but it's really hard to read and it could be someone else. I mean, it could be one of the kids or, yeah. I mean, it does have the name on it, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. But this caretaker thought that she might have been buried in St. Louis cemetery. Number one, but 
again, entombed in one of the many McCarty family tombs. I mean, or even someone, even one of her earlier husbands, their family's tombs. She could have been interred anywhere, uh, but no record of it was kept. Uh, sketchier times, you know, and uh, so we don't know what happened to her. We don't know where she died, when she died exactly, or where she ended up. But um, at this point, doesn't matter because I mean, her legend has obviously lived on. Okay, so we, you know, so we don't get a satisfying ending from her. No, we really don't. But we have some ghost stories. Oh yeah, lots <laughs> and, of ghost stories. And you know, I wonder if maybe the fact that she didn't ever get any justice, maybe that Probably helped kind made of made it better. Yeah, yeah, I made would, the story more. I think made made it more of a part of the fabric of the French Quarter because nobody. And then, I mean, it's easy for us to easier for us to look back now and go, oh, well, here's what happened to her. And but back then, how would they have known? Right. Unless someone saw her in the city. And by then, by the time she came back to the city, I mean, years had passed, you know, a good 10 years had passed. Probably most people didn't even remember what she looked like at that point. Right. I mean, most people wouldn't have. So, yeah. And the stories from 1140 Royal Street, they start uh, almost as soon as the carriage flees the house. So people start hearing scratching and moaning um, and man ends up buying it in, in 1837, only owned it for about three months and nobody really stays there for long. It's turned into a school. Eventually it's a tobacco leaf business and a gambling house. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of energy. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that through. went through there from the, you know, you had the, a couple of different schools. You had that conservatory there for a while. And then you had the stories about the Vignet guy who uh, had come from the rich family who I'm going to guess just sort of lost his mind, yeah. you know, and ends up dying there. But um, my yeah. favorite part, though, is the 1893 guy who bought it and turned it into a haunted attraction. Yes, that was my favorite. The it's first like New Orleans' tour. first ghost tour. You know, he put up these big banners on the outside of the house that said, hey, you know, come on in and be convinced of the, of the reality of ghosts. Only 10 cents, which in 1893, that'd be the equivalent of probably, I don't know what, 10, 15 bucks today, probably at least 10, about $10. Yeah. So, you know, that was, that was New Orleans' first ghost tour. That's I mean, awesome. but it didn't last very long, but right. still, I mean, you know, kind of cool, <laughs> you know, now that I'm thinking about it. Like back then, did people like if I, okay. So if I'm walking down the street, if I see a penny or a nickel or a dime, I don't stop. But if it's a quarter, I will usually pick it up. <laughs> did, back then, did people pick up any and everything that they well, saw? I'm going to guess so, because I mean, a, you know, that kind of money went a lot further. Yeah. Back then. You know, I usually, I usually try if it's a good, a, a good chunk of money, I try to do the equivalency and see what it is in our dollars. Mm -hmm. I don't know what a dime yeah. went for, but I'm going to guess it, it was obviously worth a lot more. I mean, you could buy all kinds of things for a dime right. back then. You know, and by the 1890s, I think beer was, you know, we could get a beer for a nickel yeah. and that stuff. So it, it would at least, uh, it was at least worth a few bucks. Right, right. So. And Okay, sorry. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so, so during this time, this is like the first account of allegedly finding bodies underneath the floorboards, but we don't know yeah. if that's true, right? Yeah, I, I've never found any actual records, like newspaper records of anyone finding bodies, but that story has never gone away. Mm -hmm. um, it has been there for a very long time. And it was supposed to have been happening in the 1970s when they were remodeling the house for the first time. They were fine. They found uh, bodies under the floorboards of one of the porches. At least that's the story. Yeah. But I, I found reference to it. But again, it's kind of hard to know because we did find some earlier notations of it from the 40s, but it's from the same author that wrote the 
those stores in New Orleans. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it's hard to know how accurate they they were. Uh, but I, I've read it in other places, too. But uh, again, it's one of those things where so many of the stories were just, you know, story carried on from one to the next to the next. Mm-hmm. And that's how we ended up with, you know, torture chambers and experimentation and you know, cutting holes in people's heads so you can stir their brains. Right. That, that came from repeating one author after another for 50 years. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's hard to say if there's any truth to it, but I mean, it does make you wonder because, you know, there, there were accounts of, Hey, what happened to some of their slaves? Yeah. You know, where, why are they there one day and they're gone the next, you know? Um, so maybe there is something to it, but mm-hmm. I don't have any, I, I can't tell you for sure. Cause I don't have any concrete documentation right right and they never found her quote-unquote graveyard but yeah it makes you wonder where was she dumping bodies if she needed to right if she needed to probably could have been anywhere right i mean you you were in the 1830s you're on the edge of a swamp everywhere you go Mm -hmm. so you know who knows yeah so the house remains vacant until uh, 1923 when william warrington establishes the warrington house this is the most fancy sounding name I've heard right, in quite right. some time. Well, we skipped over the Italian period. This was oh, right, dur- right. during the, the um, all the Italians coming to um, New Orleans. And I think, as I mentioned, that outside of New York City, mm-hmm. New Orleans was the number one port for Sicilians yeah. coming from Italy for immigration in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And they were overwhelmed looking for slumlords were looking for places to rent. And that's this house became a tenement. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of ghost stories from that time period, too. And I talked about all of them during the um, during the monologue. But that there were some they were they were telling some pretty scary stories. Mm-hmm. Now, whether or not, again, you, you, you don't know how much those stories were spread from person to person and told and retold. But even so, um there's some pretty scary stuff going on there. Yeah. But the, the William Warrington home for wayward boys. Yes. I I love the, and I had to put in the the note about him, you know, open its doors to what he called madcap young men, which is just kids that got out of the reformatories, you know, halfway house. And I mean, that's what this place was, was a halfway house. And, you know, I don't have any ghost stories from that time period, but it's still, it's still interesting yeah. and entertaining. And one of those stories, uh, a lot of them, you know, are, are pretty bad. Talk about a naked black man in oh, chains yeah, attacking. Yeah. But but one, children were attacked by a phantom with a whip. That's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah I, right. I do <laughs> think that is funny. Uh, so eventually house is sold to the Freemasons. Then the government takes it over. No, it was something like the Freemasons. Oh, okay, I had never heard of the grand consistatory of Louisiana, oh, but it was like an organization like okay, the Freemasons. Got it. So that w- that was the only way I could only I could compare. That it makes to, sense. But, okay. Yeah. That makes. I mean, if it was a Freemasons, we'd never know. No, it right? was some kind of you know one of those fraternal orders. You know. Got it. Got it. Okay. So the government takes it over its apartment, essentially for people that are like working through the war, right? Essentially. Building airplanes outside of the city. Yeah. And then in 1945, the first floors turn into a tavern called uh, the Haunted yeah. Saloon. That's, awesome. That's fun. Awful. And that that guy. Um, and I just I kind of mentioned it that he kept a record, but he actually kept a book in the bar so that anybody who came in who had a ghostly experience could write down their experience oh, wow. that they had in the building. I mean, assuming they were sober enough to do it, yeah. you know, and it is a bar. So, um, but I thought that was kind of cool too, because these were kind of things that were, you know, kind of like the tour mm-hmm. from, you know, years earlier. And yeah. now we've got people making note of their, th- it was kind of groundbreaking, you know, a little ahead of their time, yeah. you know, but I don't know how long he was there or not, or how long, very long, probably not very long, but it's still interesting that mm-hmm. people were cashing in on the, 
you know, the reputation of the building. Totally. And then it's a furniture store and stuff keeps getting ruined by like a gross yeah. liquid. Isn't that weird? Yeah. I what know. is that shit? I don't know. I just, I found this story and the records about this guy that had this furniture store and some kind of, you know, black slime. I, I mean. It's like a Ghostbusters I know, right? Thing. For, before Ghostbusters yeah. was his thing. I, I don't know. But, you know, and then there's the story about how he spent the night there and mm-hmm. it happened anyway. And then he closed up. It's got to be, it's got to be ectoplasm, right? Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I guess. Uh, Okay. We're going to get into the final few owners here. Um, 1969, it becomes apartment buildings and there's like a bunch of poltergeist activity. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of stuff still going on in the sixties. And that really was the end. Um, And it was an apartment building through the sixties, the seventies, and I believe into the eighties, but it was not. During a lot of that time, I believe it was uninhabited. I mean, I've got a breakdown that's not that interesting to mm-hmm. the story. And so, you know, you you can't put it all in the monologue because I already went through enough. Um, right. But um, but in 2000, it was purchased by a doctor and he's the one who did the the big restoration of the place. I mean, it, it had been turned into an apartment and, you know, it had been all these stores and apartments and stuff, but nobody had really fixed it up. So it was in pretty rough shape mm-hmm. uh, until he bought it in 2000 and he bought it for, oh man, I wish I could remember, but it was, it was for a song for New Orleans real estate, yeah. even in 2000, it wasn't much. I mean, we're talking about still in the six figures because, you know, it's a corner of hospital and Royal. It's a good yeah. spot. Um, but it was pretty run down by that time. Mm-hmm. He bought it and really redid this thing. And I believe that he put it up. I think he sold it for over 2 million. I mean, this guy made a lot of money on this yeah. deal when he finally sold it, but he kept it for, uh, well, seven years mm-hmm. until Nicholas Cage brought it. Yes. Bought it. Now the funny thing you have to think about with the Nicholas Cage thing is 2007, he is at the height of his Popularity. Oh yeah, but National this Treasure. Is, this is no. National Treasure, The Rock. Um, what else? I mean, there was all that gone in sixty stuff. seconds. Oh yeah, um, uh, Con Air. Con Air. Yeah. That he was at the Face Off. He was at the top. Yeah, that was all that John Woo, Michael Bay oh, yeah. kind of. That was a. That was the. That's that's the cream of the Nicolas Cage era. Right. And then he was doing stuff like leaving Las Vegas, Mm -hmm. which was, you know, that was like Oscar stuff. And then he was doing all the really popular stuff like the rock. And he had uh, a ton of money coming in, but I'd never been able to figure out exactly. I don't know what the connection was with him in new Orleans. Oh yeah. I don't know what that was, but he came down and he bought, he bought a bunch of stuff, not just the Lollerie mansion. He bought the Lollerie mansion, but he bought several other houses in town too. Mm-hmm. And then he had that tomb built yes. at St. Louis cemetery one, which we is, got to see it. which is of course, yeah, it's it, you can see it. It's, it's still his. Once you buy property in that cemetery, it's yours forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's paid off and it is a, it is a pyramid that he built Yes, that wedged in to a bunch of other tombs in the cemetery. And it, it doesn't, really fit with the rest of the cemetery, but whatever, um, it's his. And theoretically that's where, when he dies, he will be entombed there in that pyramid in St. Louis cemetery mm-hmm. one that but, lipstick marks all over. It yeah, it does. It. it does. Um, but whether or not anything else, I don't think he owns anything else in the city though. I mm-hmm. think he lost all of it. Well, yeah. Um, he's got some money got bankruptcy and, and well, and you know, by the end of the two thousands, he had blown 
pretty much he'd done a Johnny Depp yeah. and blown everything. Didn't he have a castle too somewhere? Uh, yes, I think he's, I think so. He had a lot of stuff. And he like had, a well, he had a real collection? estate company and he was buying up all this uh, stuff. And, you know, there are rumors that he lived in part of the Lollary Mansion, but I don't think it's ever been confirmed. I'm not sure he ever actually lived there, but he did own it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did rent out the the slave quarters in the back well, that's where the slave quarters were. The buildings that are there now are like condos. They're not. Oh, yeah. yeah. So he rented those out. And I don't think the house was rented out. And some people said he lived there. And maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. Uh, but I don't know what the connection was. Maybe he just liked coming to New Orleans. I don't yeah. know. I, I've been down there. I've seen a lot of celebrities down there over the years. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, I think I told you the story about Matthew McConaughey and Brad Pitt throwing the football back and forth what? across Bourbon no, Street. No. Yeah. They were on balconies on Bourbon Street and were throwing a football back and forth to each other. Oh, my yeah. gosh. So I've seen a lot of people down there, and, and there are a lot of people who own houses down there. Richard Simmons has a house in nice. New Orleans. Um, Gerald McCraney, you know, Major Dad, he and Delta Burke were married years ago. Mm, yeah, that's probably not, not ringing time. any bells. You'd know him if you saw him. Okay. If you watch This Is Us, he was the doctor who delivered the triplets. Well, whatever. Mm, nah. Some of our people will know who <laughs> sure, I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. Simon and Simon. He was in a lot of stuff, but uh, he has a house down there. A lot of people do. And, um, but I don't know what Nicholas Cage's connection was, but it doesn't yeah. matter at this point because he doesn't have it anymore, but right. it's just interesting, I guess, because, well, not only the pyramid tomb, but also that it's the Lollary mansion yep. that he owned. Uh, but it's, um, it was bought up again in 2009 and it is, it's privately owned now. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't know who the owners are now. They're not, you know, anybody that, whose name we would recognize, but, mm-hmm. um, the house is in beautiful shape. Oh, I mean, gorgeous. they've really kept it up. So, uh, somebody lives there, mm-hmm. um, or at least lives in parts of it. So, yeah. And yeah. you mentioned, you think that, like the house kind of losing some of the haunting, you said it's like, I a, do. like a battery that's lost most of its charge. I do. I think it's one of those stories. I mean, there haven't been any real, you know, confirmable stories since like the late seventies, mm-hmm. you know, nobody's talked about hauntings or anything. I mean, it, it's possible that it's still haunted, but um, it, it seems like it's kind of lost its its edge. Mm-hmm. You know? it's, it's interesting too because I would think with all that restoration stuff that if anything was going to happen, I know man, you would, would think then. so. Yeah, you would think so, but there hasn't been any reports of it. The doctor who did the initial re- restoration was not negative about it. He just said, "Hey, listen, I haven't had anything that's happened. Mm-hmm. So if it's haunted, I don't know about it." Kind of thing. So um, I think it's it's one of those places where I think it definitely was haunted, and its history is so closely linked to, I mean, not only the horrific history, but everything after Madame LaLaurie up for 150 years is linked to ghosts. It's it, kind of like the Winchester mansion oh, in yeah. California, yeah. you know? I mean, that's a that's a house that is this completely linked to ghosts and spiritualism and hauntings, but is it really still haunted? Probably not. Um, and maybe this isn't either. Like I said, I... I got it. I, I went inside back in, uh, I guess it was 2009. Um, it must've been shortly after it was sold again. I had a chance to go inside mm-hmm. and I would have loved to have had some sort of encounter there, but I did not. Nothing. Uh, I just really just wanted to see the house. It was yeah. just like, it's like the first time I ever went to the exorcist house. I just wanted to see it. Yeah, I just sure. wanted to go inside, you know, and that's kind of how this was too. And so you know, I mean, I'm as psychic as this table, but <laughs> still it would have been cool if there had been something, but I don't know. I mean, but it definitely has a haunted history to it. I mean, there's no question about that. And it's going to be linked to 
The Supernatural in New Orleans, it's always going to be known as the most haunted house in the city because it was for 150 some years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it goes back to the, the beginnings of ghost stories in New Orleans. And that's why I wanted to start our season really with that as our first location, because it, it sets the stage. And there's going to be places that we will talk about as this season goes on that are probably more haunted now, but I can't give you a single location in the city that has a reputation for being as haunted as the LaLaurie mansion was for so long. Yeah. So. No, that makes sense. And yeah. Um, I think, yeah, we've all learned that rich people get away with stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much what it boils down to. The rich are different than you and me, <laughs> as F. Scott Fitzgerald said. It's now time for our Ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, email us at AmericanHauntedPodcast.gmail.com. I, I don't even write it down anymore. I just know it. Uh, yeah, I guess that's why. I yeah. just forget that we that we do this. I'm glad we do. Cool. I just always forget when we get to this part of the no, show. No, we, we each have our roles. Re, re, do the do the. Email address again because I interrupted you and I didn't mean to that time. So <laughs> American Hauntings Podcast at gmail.com. There it is. Our first writer is uh, this is Cheryl. She says, Hi, Troy and Cody. Love season three of the podcast. I saved the last three episodes to listen to on a recent eight hour road trip. I went to Vliska for the first time in April and spent the night in the Moore I house. I think a couple of those episodes were probably a good chunk of her time. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There were some yes. really long episodes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I found it interesting that I had the same experience as Troy. When I was gathering our equipment, I distinctly heard and felt someone follow me down the stairs. I even turned around to see who was behind me, but no one was there. We tried to replicate the closet door opening and closing, but it didn't happen that night, but we didn't have any candy with us. Uh, we will ne- <laughs> We will next time for sure. Great job in the past, uh, this past season. Look forward to season four. And I still listen all the way to the end of each episode. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Cheryl. I'm glad we could accompany you on your... Yeah on your drive. Uh, this next one's from Adam. It says, I'm catching up on season three right now and listening to episode 40. I don't know if it's going to make Troy mad or not. He says, could the ax mur- could the ax murder be Albert Johnson? Oh, he, he means, uh, Jones, Albert Jones. Okay. Oh, okay. That's my guess. Got it. Um, so no, there, there there's you, your answer. <laughs> thank, thanks for writing in. Uh, this next one's from, not in my opinion. Anyway, right. This next one's from Mark. It says, I'm a little late to the game. I know I first heard of your podcast after a recent episode of astonishing legends telling the story of Velisca ax murders. I searched and found your podcast and I'm scrambling to catch up. I drive a fair amount uh, for work and I'm already on episode eight, but there's no mention of anyone finding bloody clothes in the area. And even a vagabond or hobo would be noticeable in bloody clothes. If the scene were as awful as the depictions say, even to the point of gouges in the ceiling, then this guy must have been dripping blood and flesh. How could no one notice that? Is there a discussion on the subject? Perhaps I missed something. Uh, I really like the show and will be joined Patreon shortly. Uh, well-developed and research show. I think we did talk about that. A little bit. Because he left pre-dawn hours and my theory has never been that he was riding in the passenger car right. of the train. I believe he was always in the, in the freight car. Mm-hmm. So um, even if he didn't change his clothes, who would have seen him? Right. I mean, and, if he's in a box car and he washed up a little bit, right. And he did wash up some, so he probably, he wouldn't have gotten it off his clothes, but he might've gotten off his skin. Right. And if you're leaving, you know, when it's still dark, mm-hmm. uh, chances are he's scooted right on out of town. I'm right. sure he left immediately because even today you still hear, you hear trains coming through constantly mm. in Villisca, but back then you would have multiplied that by like 10 because there were several railroads that came through. Now there's just one, yeah. but there's always a train going through every several times an hour. You mm-hmm. hear a train. So back then it would have been easy for him to hop a car and be gone. Right. And that's, that's the reason why no one noticed him. And so you hear all these stories about, 
you know, oh, I saw this guy hanging around the train station. Yeah. You, if you would have noticed, uh, he right. would have been covered with blood. Yep. Just like, uh, you know, Reverend Kelly, if he committed the murder and was on the train leaving town the next morning, mm-hmm. he'd have been drenched in blood. Instead, he took a shirt that had some blood stains on the cuff to that laundry, which is how what, you know, turned into something else. Right. So. I, I would imagine that he took so many trains that it had to be one point that he hopped on a car and there's already somebody doing the same thing in there and probably sees him like, what? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, this? I'm sure there were plenty of guys riding the rails back in those days. So I'm sure he encountered other people. But, um, you know, that was a that was a, a culture in and of itself. Don't ask, back don't then. tell. The guys who rode the rails, the hobos, as they called them back then, yeah. who rode the, ra- rode the rails were, you know, their own. They had their own, like, secret language. There's uh, a hierarchy, There too, was, and, there was. Uh, and, you know, they yeah. knew there were signs that were left on things that was a code they understood of, you know, this is a place that you can get off. If you go to this house, they give you food. Mm-hmm. If you go here, you can get work. Or you might see one that says, stay away from this place. So, this there is a there's a couple of really good books about that culture. One is just called Hobo, I believe, and I don't know the author off the top of my head, mm-hmm. uh, but you could probably find it if you look it up. But there's a couple of really good books about that culture, and um, I think there would be a nice, you know, go along thing with reading about Velisca. Mm-hmm. You could read some of these books too, because yeah. that's something I probably. Should have dug. If I do another, you know, uh, edition of that book at some point, I'll probably delve into that some more mm-hmm. because I've become really interested in it. But um, if you just want something to pick up and read, I, I recommend one of those books. It'll give you an idea of yeah. how that how that all worked and why it's would have been so easy mm-hmm. to do right. and disappear. I, I learned a little bit about that culture. Uh, I was listening to the last podcast on the left day and it was a Carl Panzram oh, sure. story. Yeah, yeah. He, he was big into that. Yeah. Um, really scary guy. Ooh, uh, the la- last, no kidding. last writer is Eric. It says, love what you guys are doing. I'd love to hear how you guys apply your style and re- are, I'd love to hear you guys apply your style and research skills to some of the haunted history of San Antonio, Texas, in particular Victoria's Black Swan Inn and the truth behind a previous owner's suicide where he hanged himself with a necktie while his arms were tied behind his back. And he so happened to be a criminal defense attorney. Thanks again for all the deep research and awesome shows. I've been to the Black Swan. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, actually, April, our friend April Slaughter um, has been there numerous times Mm -hmm. when she lived down in Texas. And she could probably tell you quite a bit about that kind of stuff. So maybe if we, at some point, I mean, we've got, we don't know how long this podcast will go indefinitely as far as we know. So who knows what we might get to, um, the, you know, Texas itself has a lot of stuff, but so does San Antonio has got some good, some good stuff down yeah. there. So who knows, we may end up uh, down there at some point, but, um, yeah, April did a book called ghost hunting Texas. Um, and I know that the black swan is in there. Uh, so I would recommend that um, if you want to read up on it a little bit. Um, I'm not sure how many books do cover it, but I know that that does. Awesome. So, and she could tell you quite a bit about it. Great. And I apologize for laughing. Um, I copied and pasted <laughs> this and didn't ever read it. So I did not expect that question and, and the details <laughs> in this. So it was kind funny. of out of the blue. Um, okay. So I want to just give a quick shout out to a couple of our new um, patrons from Patreon. So thank you for supporting the show. Maggie, Kathleen, Tobin, and Alan. And again, you can get on Patreon, check out all the cool stuff we have there. Um, we really appreciate all the support. Yeah, we're just sending out Christmas cards this week. Nice. So they're always a somewhat depraved Christmas cards. Is, so. is it you as Santa Claus? No, it is not. 
<laughs> one year. <laughs> so, okay. Well, I guess if you're finished, I'm finished. So yep. let's wrap up the episode. Um, thanks again for listening, everybody. Um, please, um, as we've always asked you to do since the beginning, share this with your friends. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes and uh, that helps other people find the show. And we appreciate everything that you guys have done for us. We appreciate uh, all of our listeners, all of our reviews, all of our, our Patreon patrons, which is a weird combination yeah, there, but we, we appreciate it. Um, if you've noticed the, we have, we don't have complaints about the sound in the podcast anymore. Thank God. Yeah. Um, so we don't, we, we don't have those complaints because of our Patreon people um, and made it possible for us to, to do a lot of different things that we're going to keep on growing with. So it's been a lot of fun and we're going to just keep on doing it as long as you guys want to keep listening. So thanks a lot. And um, well, I guess really I should say Merry Christmas because we will be doing uh, a, a special show that'll come out on Christmas Eve, but it will not be one of our regular episodes. So if you don't listen to that one, we hope you'll listen to this one and have a great and happy holiday season. And uh, we'll be back uh, with you on New Year's Eve. Oh yeah. Yeah. It'll be our next episode. So you can listen to this on the way to all your parties. Nice. Whatever you're doing. Yeah. So, or, you know, sitting at home yeah. with your cat, whatever yeah, you do. Exactly. No judging. Okay. This episode of the American Honics podcast oh, is written we're by done. Troy Taylor and oh, is produced we and edited by me, Cody Beck. In each bi-weekly episode, <sighs> we try to combine history, folklore, legend, imagination, and the truth to reveal more about America's most haunted places, strange tales, and unexplained events. You can find the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora apparently, Pandora, apparently. or wherever yeah. you find uh, yeah. your favorite shows and at, and at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com where we also have show notes more info about the episodes yeah, and some people listen on their on the website from American Hauntings yes That's they do cool. hey, hey we updated the website oh yeah did we ever tell anybody about yeah. that yeah we oh, did, did we? last episode oh okay well yeah. anyway Cody did a really nice job on the website it's so a big pain in the go ass go take I'm, a look at I'm, it I, so hope it pre- cool. I hope everybody likes no, it no it looks great uh, because American Hauntings isn't just podcasts it's, or a website it's, it's <laughs> books tours events and more all of which you can find at our main website at AmericanHauntings.net and if you want even more which has us, a link to the you, podcast yes you yes. can become a supporter of the podcast on Patreon you can get bonus episodes of the show t-shirts discounts great stuff in the Christmas mail Christmas cards Christmas cards and more stickers thanks to our supporters we've upgraded our equipment as Troy said and with continued help from you we can dedicate more time and resources to creating even more shows in the future so take a minute check it out we think you'll like what you find at patreon.com slash American Hauntings be sure to get in touch if you have any comments about the show suggestions reviews jokes or just want to tell us what you really think of us we're reachable via email on Twitter Instagram Facebook and by Carrier Pigeon oh and Telegraph and Telegraph and I think we're going to add um, messages in a bottle as well oh so they're, they're, that way there are lots of ways to get wouldn't you love to get a Telegram uh, does Western Union still exists like a singing telegram well that'd be even better yeah no i don't i don't like talking to people until <laughs> next time goodbye so long see you later <laughs>